Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. You're not charging enough. That's literally the basis of the show. That's something that I want you to think about. That's something you're going to learn today. Stop undercharging for your value. There is so much that you have to deliver to your clients that discounting it or charging too little to get more clients actually doesn't serve you. And we're going to learn a lot about that today. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast brought to you by C-Suite Radio. I appreciate you listening. I also want to thank my sponsor, Wine Ambassador. It's the nation's fastest growing wine club. You can have wine delivered to your house, chosen from small batch wineries, um, delivered to you. You don't have to go to a grocery store anymore and pick a random bottle. It can be delivered to you and we know it's good and you can return it if you don't like it. Go to wineadam.com and listen to what they have to say about their wine and why it may be beneficial. Today's episode, um, we're going to talk about why people don't charge enough. What are the advantages to doing it? And actually the strategies to make yourself feel more comfortable with it, to make your customers and clients feel more comfortable about it and how to position it properly. Frank Bria, thanks for joining us today. I look forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Adam, thanks so much. It's an honor to be on your show. You're, you're very welcome. And hopefully I didn't over tee it up, but I think it's very important what you do and the mindset that you help people with. But before we really dig into that, right, we always talk on the show about the journey. How did you get to be an entrepreneur? You worked in the Fortune 500 world, and now you help small and sometimes medium-sized, sometimes even large-sized businesses, but you change your focus. Tell us about that journey a little bit. Sure. So it's interesting because um, you know, a lot of people talk about their entrepreneurial uh, past, you know, they go back to, you know, knocking on doors, selling, you know, I don't know, cookies or something for, and, and, and I, when, when that was going on and when I was in school, I hated that stuff. You know, I, uh, I would, I would, I was in band or whatever, and they give you a thing of, of chocolate bars, you know, they were a buck each for like fundraiser. I ended up just eating them all and finding the money to just pay it back. I just went <laughs> door to door. Um, and so you're not uh, alone. Yeah. <laughs> band candy, whatever. <laughs> so everyone's got the memory of the band candy. But the, um, uh, so I started off in academia, actually. I, I taught, I, I went and uh, worked on a PhD in mathematics and taught college mathematics for a while. But, um, I really was missing something out of that experience. And so I, uh, I left academia and went into consulting and fell in love with a business that I didn't even know that I was in love with. And I immediately uh, was, you know, consulting and, and, and doing client presentations and, and sales support. And uh, suddenly I realized I had a skill for it. And, uh, it, and it just like, I, I've, never look back. I love teaching. Don't get me wrong. I love being in a classroom, but uh, the thrill that comes with being in that client engagement and helping people kind of move things to the next level and solving problems that, that I just fell in love with that instantly. So. That's awesome. And so the, then you worked in fortune 500 land as a consultant. What were you doing in that role? I mean, you were probably sent in there by your Fortune 500 company to work with other Fortune 500 companies. What, were, what, what role were you playing in that land? Yeah. 
So I, uh, I started off because of my math background, I was a data analytics consultant. So I started off with uh, in the financial services space, doing a lot of work uh, with data and analytics, which brought me into software and high tech. And uh, so I was recruited to do some startups work and we sold a few, we crashed a few into the ground. Um, but from that, yeah, as, as everyone has to, I think in that space, um, but from, from that work, um, I started consulting with other data analytics and software and financial services companies. And so that brought me all over the world. I was, you know, uh, at, at one point I was the, Hey Frank, we need you in Johannesburg in three days guy. So after, you know, hitting my 2 million mile mark and being elite <laughs> on not only all three U.S.-based carriers, but a couple of foreign ones as well. Uh, it just got old. Uh, you know, I mean, I had kids growing up. Um, I was exhausted. There was one time I was in Ukraine uh, at, a, at a meeting and got a text message that there was a family medical emergency and I was going to have to get home immediately. And I did the the thing everyone is absolutely panicked about literally stood up in the middle of a sales presentation and said, I'm sorry, I have to stop this meeting right now and get to the airport immediately. And, and everyone who had flown in from all over, you know, wondering what a waste of time. And I, it, it's not a, it's not a quick flight from Kiev back to Phoenix. I, I <laughs> bet. I bet. Gave me a long time to think about that which I had created and uh, realized that this was not, you know, this was not what I had gotten into to doing my own thing, to, to being my own, my own boss. It wasn't about this. Uh, so I really had to pivot. You know, I had to change what I was doing. And, you know, the first thing I thought, oh, well, this is, this will be easy. I'll just tell people I'm not traveling anymore. So I sent out, you know, email to all my clients. I'm not traveling anymore. And I lost half of them instantly. <laughs> oh, wow. And then uh, I said, well, I'm going to have to adjust kind of what I'm doing. And so I started focusing brand and attention on smaller businesses that I could uh, service from afar. And that branding confused the other half of my clients. And so I lost them as well. So the, the, this, this pivot from working from Fortune, the Fortune 500 into uh, focusing on smaller businesses was, was a painful one. It, it was not easy. I did it wrong. No, there was no one I was like reading any blog of, you know, how to, how to make this pivot. I was like learning as I went and I made a lot of mistakes uh, along the way for sure. And, and I may uh, painfully make you dig into those in, in a second. But I want to ask you when you had that consulting company and you had clients and you were flying all over the world, did you think of that in an entrepreneurial fashion? Was that a business or was that just your job? You know, I thought it was a business, but I'll tell you having built something where now I've got staff and, you know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm doing very different stuff than I was doing before. Um, you know, I, I was like, well, I'm, I'm free. I'm an entrepreneur. I could take on the projects I want, but fundamentally everything I was doing was del customer delivery. So yeah, I just, I was a job, but it, my clients were my bosses and um, they could fire me a lot easier. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, and, and you can't be in Kiev and Johannesburg at the same time. I'm no, you guessing. cannot. No. Um, as much as they I, I haven't, like I haven't been to either, but uh, I've seen a map. Um, so, you, so you make this pivot. Was this obviously the travel was part of it? And um, you said you had kids, so I'm assuming there there was a wife that was banging on your head at some point, a little bit in there, um, reminding you that 
you probably should spend a little bit more time in Phoenix. Yeah. So how did you pick the next venture of your life? Right. We'll, we'll get into exactly what you're doing, but how did you, how did you go through the process of saying, all right, I need to reassess. What's the next step? Yeah, that was tough. Um, and I spun around for a long time. And I probably, I probably spent about two years spinning round and round and round with this actually. And it, and even though I was making some money, it, it really was affecting my ability to start a business. So, so the, fir- the first thing is I sat down and thought to myself, okay, um, what am I actually good at? And, and that really tends to, I don't know, shake up all the insecurities that we have as human beings, you know? Uh, oh, I, I, bet, I bet nothing came up like a hundred times exactly. uh, as I've had the same conversation with myself. <laughs> right. So <laughs> the, the uh, yeah, exactly, right? Uh, he's like, you, you, especially when you're in a job or a career or even in a consulting gig, you kind of stumble into stuff. You know, it's not like I sat and planned it all out and said, you know, well, I'm moving from mathematical academic to uh, data consultant, global data consultant. You know, that I didn't know that that was what was going to happen. Um, and so you do, you tend to like look at it and go, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just stumbled into this stuff. It was just dumb luck that I'm here at all. So it, it can be really jarring. Um, but I was really fortunate that I had really good friends and colleagues who would sit with me and let me talk it out. And I'd ask them dumb questions like, what do you think I'm good at? <laughs> and they were, they were really nice right. to you know, give me some feedback and to reflect back on some stuff. But the thing that I struggled the most with is when you've spent a long time developing a, a, a background, a skill set, you, you, you can really get stuck in the sunk cost theory, you know, well, this is what I've been doing. This is what I have been always doing. So I've got to do this. You know, when you, you know, for in, in my case, uh, you know, I, I was involved in a fairly unique area in, in data analytics and financial services. There were probably like five of us in the world that knew it as well as, as I did. Um, and so, to walk away from that, everyone, there's a lot of people shouting at you verbally and probably non-verbally. What are you doing? That's insane. Like you're the expert in this field. Why are you walking away from this? And uh, I, I finally, and I struggled with that for years. I mean, I, I, I kept, I kept going back. I kept being sucked back into it again. Cause I thought this is what I should be doing. But I eventually came to the de- determination that that particular skill set. I couldn't scale. There was no way for me to build an asset around it and to build a lifestyle around it that I wanted. And once I finally came to that determination, you know, you go gulp <laughs> like anyone does with any sunk cost. And right. then you decide, okay, I'm planting my foot in another direction. It's interesting you say that because what was going through my head and, and probably some people listening, and I know I've been through it and, and a lot of the listeners have been through it is someone's going to offer you enough money to stay in it, right? You say, all right, I'm not traveling. And I'll be like, all right, Frank, we'll put another, whatever, five, 10, $15,000 on top of your contract for you to come to Kiev twice a year, right? How much of that played with your, with your head or with your decision-making, not only that you, the sunk cost side of it, but the sunk opportunity side of it, because people will be like, oh, we'll pay you $10,000 more to keep doing this 
and you're like, all right, right. I, did you have to battle that as much as I think you might have? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> f- fundamentally, that's why it lasted as long as it did. Because you, you get to this point where you're like, okay, it's a bit of uncomfortness. It's like uncomfortable. I don't like this. And then someone throws some more money at it and you're like, oh, okay. Right. And you have all sorts of good reasons. Right. I mean, I was, you know, raising kids, I had family, like they wanted to go to Disney world, you know, like there are real good reasons to, to go after the money. But at some point that dynamic breaks. And I think for, I don't know how it works for most people for, but for me, it was a cliff. Like it wasn't like the money became less and less important something happened in my life where I had to look at it and go, okay, this isn't about the money anymore. Like you could pay me all the money in the world and I still don't want to live like this anymore. It, it, it really came down to a, a switch went off uh, where the value just shifts. Um, and it was, and it, it, it took something dramatic and it took something, you know, really tough uh, to happen to make that happen which, you know, I kind of look back on and think, man, you know, was I just shallow? But I don't know, you, 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 can, you only have the information you've got in front of you, right? We, we only go through this life once. So, right. uh, you know, it's not like we kind of know how all the answers up front. But yeah, it, it, the, the golden handcuffs, as they call it, it, it keeps a lot of people stuck. And everybody that I know that's had to take the golden handcuffs off has had to find something more important than that and that they were willing to trade all of the money in order to get something else out of it. No, I think that's, that's very well said. I want to shift back to something you said earlier and you said with your consulting business, you said, I thought I was running a business. So if you, because there's a lot of people that are sole proprietors, they're consultants, even if they're not consulting, so they're plumbers, but they're sole proprietors and they're doing their thing, but they're doing all the work and all of the knowledge and know-how is built within themselves. Obviously you don't want to go back to the travel or go back to that world. But if you put yourself back there, is there something with all of the knowledge that you've gained now that you could have done differently and stayed in that sort of highly sought after space, but done it better? Uh, Sure. I mean, you know, I I would never say no. Uh, At the time I couldn't think of anything, but you know, the, what I have learned, I think, since is that most of the challenges that I kind of brought on myself were that I wasn't building an asset. You know, it, it, I, I, had a, I was building clients and cash flow and maybe a portfolio of, of you know, testimonials and, and great things that I had done, but I wasn't really building an asset. And from the sense of, you know, if I got injured, if I got you know, if, if I'm going to pass this on to my kids, like, is there anything to pass on? And, you know, if you're the, you know, one of five people in the world who understands one particular area of financial data analytics, it's really not much to pass on. You <laughs> really can't do that very well. Um, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, let's sit down for a few years and I'll teach you, you know. Uh, so right now, I'm spending a lot more time thinking about systems and replicability and, that has been a filter for me, even working with a completely different group of clients. It's been a filter for me. I can say, is this repeatable? Is this going to be something I can build on and, uh, and, and turn into something I could pass along? Or is this just 
a really cool project uh, that I just think is really fun and interesting for me. But the fact of the matter is no one else would really care. That's an important question. And I don't always get this right, but it's an important question that I ask myself now. And sure, if I had been asking myself that from the beginning, uh, definitely there are projects I would not have taken on. There are opportunities that I probably would have thought about uh, twice. Um, and there would have been other things that came up, you know? It's not like it's an all or nothing game. There would have been other opportunities. Uh, the, so, so important to think about. Obviously, hindsight gives us um, a whole lot more clarity on the issue. We're talking with Frank Bria on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast with Adam Kipnis. Now I want to pivot to what you're doing today, right? So, so you had your, your consulting job, for lack of a better term. There are things that you hated about it and you decided to make a pivot. And there, you know, there was that two-year start and stop. You'd get pulled back in. You would do other things. Let's now move to, all right, you figured it out. You know what you want to do. You know who your client is. How do you go get them? Yeah. So, the, and this also was something that it, it took me a while to kind of figure out. Because fundamentally, my client now is me, my old, the old me, which a lot of people do, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly enough, um, I thought I was really good at talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'm not as, as good as I thought. And I'm sure there are some marketing geniuses out there that are great at putting the copy together and the positioning and stuff. But um, it took me a while to dial in uh, to, to be very specific. You know, I think for me, one of the big mistakes I made early on was uh, tr trying to be too general, trying to catch too wide of a net. And I think a lot of people just like me end up with that problem. So from a, you know, what it took me to attract those clients was really being very specific and, and uh, talking in terms that they are like, oh my gosh, is, is he like, behind me in my office? Is he like reading my diary? Where did, where is he coming up with this stuff? This is exactly what I was talking about yesterday. And that kind of specificity, I would start getting emails, uh, you know, from the email copy that I'd sent out. People would say, this story is me. Like this could have literally been me last year. Um, and I think that's really what started the whole process of getting those ideal clients in. It wasn't until I could articulate this in a really personal, gut-wrenching, <laughs> detailed way that I started to really uh, get some traction in the sales and marketing area. No, I, I love that you said that because one of the things that I do with my clients is I do a very specific uh, strategic and marketing planning process where I essentially lock people in a room, not in a creepy way, but in a very important way where we dig into the next three years of their life. And one of the questions is what keeps your client up at night? Right. And if you don't know that we're not moving on. Right. Right. We're going to sit there until we know that. Did you, was that one, it was you, right? So you already yeah. knew you were talking from personal experience. Was there trial and error involved? Did you pull your client base? Did you reach out to friends? How else besides yeah. knowing what you did, did you learn that you got it right? I mean, trial and error and talking to people for sure. Like, I think it's, you know, I was lucky that I had a number of 
entrepreneur. I joined a, you know, entrepreneurial networking group and uh, they, a lot of good friends I still have to this day uh, that really helped me refine that. But look, all of this stuff is a little bit of trial and error. You know, I, I keep, I try to help people get a little bit of a sense of realism about this stuff. Marketing's trial and error. It's a, you know, it's not like there's some magic answer out there. You, you just have to kind of figure it out. Um, but I would say the one thing that slowed me down a little bit that I wish I had not gotten stumbled into was getting stuck in the siren song of other people's marketing messages. So I would look at other people who were doing something similar to me and I would go, oh, well, this is working for them. So let me give it a try. And there is a lot of that out there. You know, you lots of people who are like, hey, you know, uh, copy my swipe file of emails or whatever, you know, when it's like Mad Libs fill in the blank stuff. And it just gives the wrong message that marketing, uh, especially in the service industry, it really does have to be you, you know, and there, and there are ways and there are formulas and patterns, but you can't just wholesale rip somebody else's style off. It doesn't work. And, and so I tried for a while to try to be somebody else uh, in a lot of marketing messages because I thought, well, it works for them. Well, let me give it a shot. Um, and it really took me some time to realize, no, actually, I could be me. And there are actually people who want to hire me for me. And there are going to be people who are like, you know what, that Frank guy's a jerk. I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not going to work with him. And that's cool. Like, that's right. just the way it goes. <laughs> So, so your high ticket program and, and, and the people that you work with, right? I started the, the episode with that you're not charging enough. Yeah. And it's true for so many people, right? right? We, we, we talk to someone and we know our price point and for whatever reason, what comes out of our mouth is lower than what we told ourselves was going right. to be on the contract walking in. Right. Obviously to, to have success in your life and with your clients, you probably have studied a little bit of the psychology of that. Yeah. And if not the psychology from a, from a textbook standpoint, just sort of the mental real life examples. Why, 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 why do we do it? <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, this is actually one of the cool things that sort of the outcrop of my fortune 500 consulting, because I was a pricing expert. So, you know, I worked with these companies on pricing and so many of these, uh, these fundamental principles, we, we just sort of ignore. Uh, and, and so we kind of wander around going, pricing's an art. And, or you get the, the other side of it, which is, you know, just throw a zero on there. It's just about mindset. You'll figure it out, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it really doesn't help us kind of get, the, uh, get a good relationship with our client because they also kind of can tell if the price is just sort of made up, you know. So I think there's a couple of things. First of all, we, we don't have any good understanding of what the principles of pricing should involve. So especially in service businesses and products, it's a little bit easier. You know, you got a cost, they're on a margin, you're good to go. But in yep. services, um, we, we don't have a good sense of that. So, you know, we start off with I'll charge an hourly rate, you know, and that's kind of the initial thing, which is kind of, again, the cost and margin piece. But if the, in services, it's kind of unique we have to fulfill a need for our customer. And that need might have a very different value than what we are putting in as an effort, right? So we all are kind of stuck in this idea of translating things into hours, right? 
Yeah. You know, we think the person behind the Burger King counter kind of, we kind of know what they're making per hour. You know, we talk about the CEO, what they're making and we divide it by 2000 a year and, and go, Oh, that's their hourly rate. I can't believe it. You know, that's how we think about things, but that's not how we buy things. You know, when we look at uh, purchasing services, we look at the, the value it generates for us. We don't, we don't do the hourly math. And so we end up with, like we're thinking about price in one way and our customers are thinking about price in a completely different way. And oftentimes it just completely misses. So we have to first start out by understanding how our customer is thinking about their investment in us. Um, and then it's fear and psychology. I mean, I think not, if, if we're not connected to any core principles for how we price, we're going to do whatever our, you know, it or super it or whatever the psychology <laughs> term is, is going to make us do. And sometimes we're going to be fearful and we're going to drop the price. Sometimes we're going to be egotistical and we're going to inflate the price. You know, whatever it is, it's going to be a, you know, a measurement of whatever is going on in a, inside of our head. So that's typically why people go off the rails on the pricing part. It's a really emotional concept. Yeah. And when working with small to medium-sized businesses, and you probably have clients that are probably brand new and just getting started, but have a, a checkbook where they can invest in, in their business on the front end. You probably have clients that are making, you know, low six figures and need to ramp up. And there are clients that are making a million bucks, but their margins are zero and they're spending a million bucks, right? right? So you've got these three sort of disparate uh, positions, but they all need the same advice that you can give them. And I know um, that you're not gonna give away all the secret sauce, <laughs> on the podcast, but where do they start? Like, yeah, they're not, they're not where you're talking about. So right. where do they start thinking about it differently? So, so this all, every service business comes down to outcome. Okay. So it's exactly like you said, Adam, like what is keeping the person up in the middle of the night? What's waking them up at two o'clock in the morning. And most service businesses, even though they can articulate that sometimes with some help, they still talk about things that don't really wake somebody up at two o'clock in the morning. So the first thing we have to do is align to an outcome anyone even cares about, right? So I hear this a lot of times from people. I'm a social media guru. Like I'm a social media consultant. No one wakes up at two o'clock in the morning and says, if I could just have more social media, like that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking <laughs> I want more clients, I want more revenue. You know, those are the things that, that really matter to them. The same thing's true in the soft skills space, right? Think about leadership, leadership consultants and leadership trainers. Again, no CEO, I don't care how big the company is, is waking up at two o'clock in the morning and thinking, I just need more leadership. That's not what they're thinking. They're thinking something else. And so we have to start off with that. What is that outcome? Once we can identify that outcome, it has a value. And, you know, not to be overly simplistic about it, but most people are only buying for one of four reasons, okay? They want to make money, they want to save money, they want to stay out of jail, or they want to have a better life. That's kind of it. <laughs> There's not a lot left. Um, and so we have to align, you know, which of those four squares we're in and, and value it and get a, essentially a, a number. And uh, the numbers can be squishy, but at least we're doing the work of saying, okay, this is what this is. So Take, for example, the, the different cases that you talked about, right? So we've got, you know, a small business that doesn't have a lot of money. They're trying to get up and running, right? 
you've got a larger organization that has cash in the bank and they're trying to grow. Um, you know, what, you know, how do you price those different services, even though they're the same, you know, I'm doing the air quotes there for those who have a podcast world. But the thing is, they're not the same. They, they, they may be the same from an input perspective, right? It may take the same amount of time, may take the same amount of problem solving, but the value that it generates for those two clients is very different. I could probably take someone who's making, you know, uh, $5,000 a month and get them to $25,000 a month in a fairly straightforward fashion. But if I'm working with a uh, $20 million software company, I'm probably going to get them to $25 million, right? So that's not the same value proposition and therefore I'm not going to charge the same amount. Um, so that's the first principle to pricing is to be able to understand what it is you're delivering in the, in terms of the value you're generating for the customer. It's kind of like, I kind of call pricing three legs of a stool and that's leg one. What is the return on investment and can you justify a 10 to 20 X return on that investment? Um, and yeah, sure, you're going to make some assumptions that everyone does, but at least doing that work and thinking it through gets you some place to start in the yeah, pricing conversation. That, that, I thought I only had one question left. Now I've got two. So that, bring, that brings up a very important point that a lot of business owners don't think about. And I do think about it, but I didn't articulate it quite the way you just did is Stop thinking about the work that you're doing. Start thinking about the end result of your client. Right. And if I work with a client and I'm going to make them a hundred grand this year, if I bring them, if I charge them $10,000 for them to get their hundred, literally it's free. Yeah. Literally my work is free. So $10,000 is easy to ask for. Right. Um, Obviously, that's a big part of your coaching. So that was, I guess, more of a statement than a question. But um, how hard is it for your clients to get that concept? Not, yeah, to, not to just understand it, but to get it. It, it's, it, it takes, I, I think this is one, an area where it's really helpful to get some outside perspective. And th this, isn't just a, this isn't just a pitch fest for coaches and coaches and consultants, generally speaking. But, but we like really those is, too. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is helpful to get an outside perspective. We're, we're not really good at this kind of introspection stuff and valuing things. And so um, thinking through, first of all, what is it that someone really cares about? Like getting away from it, the way you said it was great. Uh, it's not about what I do. It's about the value that that's what they get. We're, we get so hung up on things like titles and like, you know, my educational background and all this stuff, it's all very personal. And so to throw all of that out um, in service of what the client actually gets, it's a little unnerving, you know? It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a transformation for sure. Um, it's a transformation that one has to go through to kind of get through that. But, you know, when it comes down to it, you, when you can articulate the value proposition and talk about a 10 to 20X return on investment, you have so much better of a sales conversation. I mean, when it finally comes down to discussing price, you don't have to play this like game that everybody plays where it's like, well, today only, <laughs> you know, I've got this special deal. You can say, listen, this is what happens. In our program, we help people earn $100,000. In order to do that, 
our investment is $10,000. You pay 10,000, you get 100,000. How, how does that feel for a return on investment? Is that a reasonable one? And now you're having an intelligent conversation about price as opposed to playing a shell game of, you know, well, we're throwing in these bonuses this time. So it, it's, a, it's a more mature conversation. It's more realistic. No, totally agree. And, and in our final minute or so here, one additional question, which I think is a very important thing that uh, people need to understand. You can see right behind him for those of you uh, watching us on YouTube, and uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Behind his head says high ticket program. <laughs> he might as well just have called it, I'm effing expensive. <laughs> um, but not only is you're teaching people how to charge other people more, you're telling your customer, I'm really expensive. Right. And I would say that the thing that you want to, that this comes down to positioning, right? So there are a lot of ways you could position yourself. Okay, you can position yourself as, as the least expensive, right? You can position yourself as the premium brand. But what people don't seem to understand is there are two different premium positionings, okay? One is just unreachably ridiculous, okay? Like, and, and we can all probably think of brands that we know that sort of fall into this ostentatious, like, you know, it's expensive for no good reason. Like, why are you doing that? Um, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, in order to raise your prices and to do it in a sustainable way, where, as I like to say, your customers actually thank you for raising your prices, <laughs> is because you have aligned to something they actually want. Uh, I'll give you an example. So at uh, one time, uh, I had a, a woman who was calling up, uh, applying for one of our programs. At the time, it was kind of a 25000 or sorry, a, a, a $2,000. $500 program. And uh, she said, can I break this up into like 12 payments? You know? And I was like, <laughs> mm, no, like, I, I just, I feel like if it's a cash flow problem, like we're just, just not a good fit. And I don't want to be the person who's like standing between you and your mortgage payment. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't feel good. So right. maybe this isn't a good fit. So she's like, okay, are, are you sure? So anyway, we said, no, thank you. Moved on. A couple of months later, I was doing a, an offer with a partner um, and we had an offer with a lot of really taking businesses uh, uh, very far down the path, but it was, it was $100,000, okay, to work with this group. And it was $25,000 like wire transferred in on day one, no payment plan, like you had $25,000 buy-in, that was it. This same woman called back and, and talked about it. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this, but I just want to be clear, like it's $25,000 up front. She said, yeah, I've got it in savings. I'll go ahead and transfer it in. So where we had this argument about $2,500 before, now 25,000 is no big deal. And to me, that was a huge lesson because I finally had an offer she wanted and wanted enough to go into her savings account and transfer the money out. And that's the work we have to do as service business owners is we have to find that mouthwatering, irresistible, I have to have it, I will go raid my savings account in my piggy bank to get it. And that takes work. It's not a mindset thing. I mean, partly it's a mindset thing, but it's not, it's not just about you standing in a mirror 
and practicing I'm expensive, I'm expensive over and over again so you can say with a straight face, you have to do the work of actually designing something that people want. And yeah, that takes some work and some effort. But when you do it, you finally hit that sweet spot that your client has been begging you to do something about and no one else can quite figure out. And they say, thank you. And the way that they do that is by showing you that you're delivering value. And that's in business, how we demonstrate that you're delivering value is what we pay each other. Agreed. And, and you couldn't have said it any better. That's a great way to end this episode. Frank Bria, thanks for being here. And we're both in Phoenix. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.